This is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This week, we are offering four conversations from episode 52, predicting long-term outcomes using MR elastography. This conversation starts with Ian Rowe and Alina Allen discussing the practical benefits of a study like hers in managing individual patients. Patients with similar fibrosis scores and different liver stiffness measurements will require different levels of aggressiveness in lifestyle management and possible clinical trial involvement, and clearly different frequency in screening and follow-up. Ian goes on to discuss a large-scale patient assessment of similar issues he has undertaken with his team in Leeds and some early lessons. Finally, Louise Campbell shifts focus to discuss how providers can use these same kinds of results to support end-of-life patients making the key decisions they need with more time than if we simply wait for them to approach clinical failure. This paper is one more key building block in the case for moving beyond biopsy as an endpoint measure in drug development and patient management. It's worth a serious listen, so sit back, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the discussion on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion groups. Ian Rowe. This is great because it speaks a lot up to the development of more personalised risk stratification for patients who've got fatty liver disease and, and other liver diseases. And I was interested to hear last week when you were talking to Scott Friedman about the yolk that is liver biopsy. It's more like a millstone, I think. We're sort of stuck with it and trying to get that from around our necks is going to be a challenge. There's some of the analyses that you've done, Alina, are interesting because they still speak to the want to tie it to a biopsy and this and progression to cirrhosis as being an outcome and be interested to hear what Louise thinks about that as a patient relevant outcome. I guess that from my point of view, managing patients, it's that risk of decompensation that's really critical in making treatment decisions. And you alluded to that a bit when you were talking about the risk that you might explain to a patient based on their liver stiffness. And, and I'd be interested to hear whether you talk to them about development of cirrhosis or really whether you talk to them more about complications related to liver disease because ultimately that's what's most important to the patient I guess. Alina Allen. Absolutely. What's lacking in clinical practice currently is that we put the non-cirrhotics in a bag say for clinical trials where we really try to distinguish F2, F3 and, and try to get as much information from that which is great but from the clinical practice standpoint if you don't have cirrhosis it's kind of a blanket recommendation of do this, talk about weight loss and we'll follow up in X amount of time. This is where there's an opportunity to individualize the management more because if you don't have cirrhosis, but your liver stiffness by MRE, but you know, transient elastography can probably give a similar story. If the liver stiffness is 2 versus if the liver stiffness is 3.5, yes, they both don't have cirrhosis, but their risk of developing future complications is very different. Having a graph like this or an imaging like this, where you can actually plot and say whatever X percent we decide as a community that is important from cost effectiveness type of an aspect and we say your risk to reach that threshold is X percent versus much lower, then one, the aggressiveness of lifestyle changes, medications, weight loss surgery or other things would be different and the length of monitoring will be different. We do not need to watch these patients with elastography every year. That will not be cost effective by any sort of elastography, even if we consider fibroscan. And looking at the small number of events which are heart events like cirrhosis and decompensation in even a cohort like this, or even in the NASH-CRN cohort that Stephen mentioned, you follow these people for some time and you have a 
small number of events if we put the non-serotics in a bag. That's where we need to distinguish who are those who need to be followed maybe yearly versus who can we step back and call in five years for another elastography. Not for weight loss, but for elastography, which is where the cost is. That's what we try to distinguish in that previous paper where we included NAFLDs to say that if your stiffness is 2.5 or less, we do not need to look at it again in five years because your chance of having cirrhosis in that time is less than 0.5% or something. I can't remember the number, but it was very, very low. That's where the opportunity of personalized and in a clinical pathway of how do we use these tools that give us some information so that we don't waste cost of healthcare, but also personalized so we don't miss cirrhosis development or other decompensating events. So I agree with a lot of that. And I guess that the reason that I'm here today is that we have a study that's in revision using transient elastography rather than MRE in a very similar fashion to what you've done, but containing just over 3,000 patients looking at outcomes. And that's patients who had an ACLD phenotype, so fibrous scans of 10 or more. And then you can map them through their disease trajectory, development of varices, decompensation, HCC, and ultimately mortality, either from liver disease or from other causes. We see very similar things to you, that there's this gradual increase in risk as your liver stiffness increases. And once you get almost to a tipping point, the liver stiffness is then less useful, but measures of liver function become more useful and probably complementary. And you see that in the way that you've incorporated the MELD score into some of your analyses. In my view, this is the direction that we need to go in because this will take us away from biopsy because it'll give us multimodality information about stiffness as a proxy of fibrosis and measures of liver function, whether that's the MELD score or other measures, that will give a much better indication of what's going to happen to the patient in the future that is much better than binary cirrhosis, non-cirrhosis, and is better than the ordinal F2, F3, F1. You know, it'd be interesting to hear what discussions you have around the CRN natural history piece and that paper from Arun Sanyal that Stephen mentioned before in the highlight of mine next week will probably be the be the reading of those those manuscripts having come back from holiday. Taking the non-invasive testing together with that information based on the biopsy cohorts will really take us a long way forward. I agree. The highlight that I draw from that, I mean, there's a lot of, I don't know if we want to go into that paper to discuss, there's a lot of points in that. What non-invasive estimation would be helpful, what I caught is that F2 or less population, which is the majority, even in a registry type of a data set with liver biopsy from patients who are seen in hepatology. So the spectrum of people who get to a hepatologist are a bit on the more severe spectrum. Even in that population in which the majority was F2 or less, the number of events were very few. So what do we do with those people, not only in the hepatology clinic, but in the primary care clinic, where again, the majority of those people will be less than clinically significant fibrosis? How do we apply these measures in terms of monitoring because liver biopsy will not be feasible? FIB4 is less than ideal for little granular progression of disease. So how can we, if we take these procedures into practice and individualize the follow-up and the aggressiveness of disease is where the opportunity stands. Louise, you want to go ahead? Louise Campbell. I'm very interested to hear all of the points there, but um, the one thing that I look at probably from more recent experiences with my father-in-law is that when we can predict outcomes and deterioration, but with the non-invasive tests um, like the MRE, like the Fibroscan, if we can do that earlier in a time point, we then get the opportunity to really individualise patient care, but we also get the opportunity to individualise for some patients the process of terminal care at an earlier time point, which allows us to do things better. If I think to my own units that I've worked in, we have never talked about putting wills into place. We have never talked about how people manage 
the last few years in a way that maybe we as healthcare professionals focus on the what we can do, how we can prolong, and we do need to stay focused on that. But the earlier time points that we can get diagnostics in to pick up a progressive disease to enable us to manage the late stage of people's lives in a better way, and that they can manage their lives to put things into order. This is an added advantage to non-invasive tests that give us warning of what is going to get there. Not every patient gets transplanted, so we do have to manage that better. I don't know, Ian, you might know whether there is any unit currently in the UK that talks about how you manage your wills. Have you got this? Have you got that? They're uncomfortable conversations for us to have as healthcare professionals. They're important conversations for us and charities and advocates to be having with families as a result of how much better we are becoming at being able to say when decompensation is going to happen. This MRE paper has done that and the grades and that 22% increase and things like that. People need to know that in advance. I mean, just in, in reply to Louise's point, the palliative care and end-of-life care planning in patients who've got advanced cirrhosis is certainly something that people are increasingly recognising and we do a bit of that, although I wouldn't say that we were leading at all, around the time of transplant assessment, particularly in parallel planning, hoping for the best but planning for the worst because it's a important that patients understand the severity of their illness at that point. Earlier than that, where there's a risk of decompensation, it's probably still quite difficult to have those conversations because it's not clear what's going to happen and something else might happen to the patient and these sorts of things. And I think people would find that quite challenging. I agree that it's something that we need to remember because, as you say, a lot of the other interventions that we have for patients who've got very advanced liver disease are, are not that great in all honesty. And, and the sorts of treatments that Scott Friedman talked about last week for end-stage disease, we're really not that much further on so other than transplantation it really is managing what's going to happen in the future and as I say hoping for the best but planning for the worst. Stephen or Alina if either one of you could comment on from what you see how the way the U.S. is managing palliative issues looks different than what Louise and Ian just raised and I have a question for you Alina but I can come back to that in a minute let's touch this one first. Yes this the palliative care and the futility of a treatment is an area that we need more work in the United States as well as it comes to management of those people we need pathways. We need to figure out when is beyond what. Even in transplantation, we don't have a lot of that piece of the actual benefit of a transplant. I don't know about the role of non-invasive testing with elastography in that particular population because typically we talk about a patients with decompensated liver disease or advanced cancer for which liver stiffness measurement is not the best predictor for. It's a little bit beyond that. It's liver function, it's events, it's the patient's overall number of comorbidities and severity. So the conversation is different there. I, I don't know about a role specifically as a central or for non-invasive testing there. The role there is clinical pathways. When do we decide to not do the, all the invasive tests and procedures? When do we involve palliative care? In what way do we have this conversation? How do we involve the family? This is an area that I think there are some of our colleagues who do some very nice work in that area and hopefully we'll hear more about that in the next few years. My only comment was going to be that I know that there are diseases in the state's oncology certainly where a lot more thought is put into this particular issue because of the derivation of disease and the likelihood that it will wind up in death, frankly. So it, it's not that examples might not be out there. I can see why they would not have come to this neighborhood yet. The good news, I think, is that we have places to learn from even if we'll be learning using a different set of criteria than what we produce in, in hepatology or for fatty liver. 
And now, back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We will be back next Wednesday, November 3rd, with another episode on an issue of critical importance to drug development and patient treatment in fatty liver diseases. I hope you'll join us then. Until then, stay safe, surf on, see you on the podcast.